Hi, I'm Tim Sanova, and welcome to part two of our special two-part series of Work Shouldn't Suck Live, the morning-ish show. On today's episode, Lauren Ruffin and I are joined by Ashara Ekundayo, Esteban Kelly, and Cyrus Marcus Ware. And let's waste no time getting into the conversation. Ashara, Esteban, and Cyrus, welcome to the show. Hi, morning. (laughs) It's good to see all of your faces. I'm going to kick it off with the question that we've been asking people just to check in, which is, how are you doing right now? We've got a pandemic happening in addition to, it's not even a resurgence because the sort of movement for Black Lives never went away. However, it's we've been thrust back into the forefront. So really curious just to check in and see, how are y'all doing? Whoever wants to go first. It's hard to navigate on the screen. I'll go first. My name is Asharia Ekondayo, and I'm really clear that it is morning. It's not morning. It's heck early for me. How am I? I'm living right now on the land called Oakland, California, which is the unceded land of the Ransom Maloney Nation here in Northern California. So we've been in the streets all weekend. When I think about how am I, I'm rejuvenated and exhausted and still angry. Yeah, I'm still mad about the level of injustice that we're taking in right now and consuming. They're so inspired by the artist and the creativity and the brilliance of Black people right now. Okay, good. (laughs) So yeah, I'm Esteban and I'm based in Philadelphia on the Lenape people's land. And I feel I've been yo-yoing a lot the last week, not even cyclically within a given day, but really just at any point, I can go from feeling really hopeful and inspired and called to action or to belief in a possibility that things can really change. And, and other moments really sitting with grief for exactly those reasons that you were starting to say that there's this layering of all the different things that we're living through. And it's not coincidental. Some of those conditions are agitating and exacerbating or heightening the intensity of some of the other ones, particularly as experienced by Black people, not just in Philadelphia or in the US, but around the world. So I think where I land is, I think today I feel pretty good. I'm feeling very connected to my people all over the world, by which I mean my very close friends who happen to be a mini diaspora themselves, but also to Black people all over the world and to that diaspora. And just seeing like as far away as New Zealand and in Bristol and in Berlin and in just all over in Sao Paulo, where a part of my diaspora community is of friends, just seeing how many people are leaning into this question of what it means to love Black people and to show up for us and to reckon with the conditions of how we're treated, not just voyeuristically in Minneapolis, but Black people are everywhere and we are suffering in similar ways all over the world. So... I'm just sitting with all that. Hey, everybody. I'm Cyrus Marcus Ware. I am, how am I? I'm exhausted. I'm overjoyed by this moment of activism because I feel like activism is life-giving and quite joyful, even when we're in the streets, even when we're raging, even when we're sobbing. The act of activism can be very life-giving for me. So on the one hand, I feel exhausted because as an organizer with Lives Matter, Toronto, it's been nonstop. But on the other hand, it's when we come to the streets, when we resist from our homes, when we say enough is enough, when we say that Black Lives Matter, when we do this organizing and fighting, 
It's a beautiful, beautiful, magical thing. And to have human beings coming together and screaming in unison, a chorus of voices standing up for Black lives, that's a beautiful thing. So I'm feeling tired, but energized from this moment. I also have been involved in a lot of direct action and there's more to come. There was a police killing here in Toronto that we've been organizing around. And I mean, these are heartbreaking times too. Also, my heart is so full of listening to family members, listening to people tell stories about the anti-Blackness they experience in their day-to-day life. We've heard a lot of that over the last week and it's heartbreaking. It's so much to hold all of that. So I'm just sitting here with a lot of complex emotions, but in general, I'm energized by this conversation being such a public one. And I'm energized by the fact that the conversation has shifted from Band-Aid reform to all-out revolution. (laughs) And so I'm here for it. Awesome. So all three of you hinted, and I should say, y'all are our first sort of triad of guests. So moderating is a little different. But you hinted at doing different work or your work has shifted a little bit during this time. Can you tell us a little bit just basically about what you're doing right now and what your sort of where your focus is and a background bio if you're interested in doing so? And again, whoever wants to go first can. I feel like y'all are staring each other down. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're just kind of in awe of each other. I'm like, wow, you're doing it. No, I'm I'm just so excited for y'all to hear this bit and then just really spend time together and sort of fellowship a little bit. I can start. I mean, I just was speaking, I might as well just keep going, but I'll say I'm an artist and an activist and an organizer. And oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the question. I just totally lost it. We started. It was an I am. What do you work? What are you thinking yeah, on? Thank How you that your work shifted, if it's shifted at all. Yeah. I mean, my I'm an artist and an activist and an organizer. I'm also just finishing a PhD specifically in prison abolition and disability justice. And my work shifted from sort of everyday kind of making art, working on my PhD a little bit and doing some activism to being full on 24-7, all hours of the day, responding to media requests, responding to the needs of this moment, supporting family members. Like it's just shifted dramatically. And that's what happens when these things kind of ramp up is that suddenly the demands become around the clock and there's just so much. So right now my work day shifted from being sort of like a pandemic-ish 11 to 7 to now being 24-7. So that's what I've been working on a lot. We're very involved in this conversation around defunding the police and prison abolition and trying to make justice for Black people by finally ending this system of police violence control that extends from slave labor camps. So we've been really engaged in this conversation around defunding the police, and that's what I'm spending a lot of my day. That's my work right now. But. I just say that because I'm feeling all that and I'm really thinking about what it means to be a curator right now. My work is art curation and cultural strategy work and being a body, a person who's in a Black body, in a body that identifies as she as well as they. My work has generally been about research, documentation, and archiving the stories of Black people through organizing work artivism, if you will. And I would say in this shelter in place, in this time of this COVID pandemic, in this time of this uprising, I mean, first of all, my mind has been blown so quickly into the reality that we are living in the future that we have been looking 
forward to for some of us, reading about, watching, experiencing through literature, through film, through stories from our grandmothers, all of that. Folks who we always thought we're not going to see that in our lifetime. And so I've gone, I think, from being someone who is directly organizing exhibition to someone who has had to kind of expand and decentralize the so-called power inside the, I wouldn't say the mainstream art sector, but inside the independent art sector, to looking at power and to pulling this thread on a platform that I'm authoring called Artist as First Responder, and to see our work and to know and to understand that even the people who do not identify as artists are pulling from their most creative divine self to do this work. But that also this destination, this designation, this experience, and this platform really pulls the thread on amplifying the light and the creative labor that has often gone unspoken, unthanked, unnoticed, and putting it right and centering it in the front, putting it right in the front of our face. That is the artist that shows up first. When there's a catastrophe, a situation, any kind of idea that is operating where we are right now in a rupture, like there is an absolute shift that has happened, that the artists are the ones who make it right for us and speak for us and redesign and help us reimagine. So what I know is that my work has become pushed into the forefront of documenting and amplifying that work right now. Thank you. Esteban? Yeah, I can pick up from there. One of the things I've been noticing, especially in the last week, is how my work and the different organizations and communities and the different spaces that I occupy are all starting to kind of come together around this. And in so many ways, it's a relief to not have to pivot and be like, now I'm doing policy work. Now I'm doing transformative justice, political education. And now I'm doing work around supporting labor organizers, which I mostly do through cooperatives with the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops. But to see all this kind of, all these efforts coalescing And it becomes easier to just sort of be who I am and draw upon the stuff that I've been working on for a long time in community. And I think that if above all else is what is animating the moment, it's that there's all this stuff that we've just been preparing for. Like we knew this was coming. We knew the contradictions. And so it's been really interesting to see people who aren't part of my organizing life get an opportunity or a window into things that I've been this like breadcrumb trail that I've been leaving for years and years and years. And I'm like, oh, look at this toolkit around anti-Black racism that my worker cooperative developed three years ago that was just like sitting in the wings. It's been hanging out on our website. Some of you are downloading it, but people who are like, oh, I didn't even know that you guys created that. And I follow some of what you guys are doing or this this book called Beyond Survival that actually just came out earlier this year it's called, the subtitle is Strategies and Stories from the Transformative Justice Movement. And it goes back to organizing that I started doing 15 years ago with a group called Philly Stands Up Collective. And we have a couple of chapters in here, but it's got contributions from this multiracial, mostly queer movement of people who have been experimenting and testing out what a world looks like without prisons, without policing. Because that question always needs to be answered. Like it's not just enough to insist on, hey, we don't like this whole thing with the criminal legal system. But to while knowing that that's going to hit a wall at some point, that it's going to have a crisis moment, what are the things that we can propose and explore and say that we can recommend or test out? And so this 
starts to highlight some of those things. It just came out earlier this year. I think in terms of what I'm up to, it is straddling the political education, the resource sharing, being a cheerleader for people who are doing different kinds of organizing and making sure that they're feeling replenished and encouraged, especially for Black organizers to share their voice and to lift up white people, the white people in multiracial movements who've been instructive, who've actually done their homework, who aren't like, I got woke because I saw a meme two weeks ago, but who actually are there to be the resource so that my phone isn't blowing up because I've got other (laughs) frontiers to be pushing forward. And I'm like, you know what? Y'all can be connecting with these folks. So kind of making sure that we're connecting those dots is an important piece of the organizing. One of the things I've been thinking about a lot, in particular over this weekend, is around just the rapid change in being the only person in rooms talking about like, I grew up in a town without police and people being like, what, huh? And I'm like, so everybody should do that all over the United States where there actually aren't police, where they straight up, if you have a, you might have one police officer. I think there were, my township had none. The town itself had like two or three maybe. And now everyone's talking about it. And what I think is so interesting that you all touched on is this is actually work that folks have been doing for so long. And we're at this perfect moment where white people who have never gone out to a protest are going out to a peaceful protest with their kids and finding themselves being tear gassed, Yeah, which immediately debunks the idea that black people do something to deserve policing. And then there's this whole, I mean, you can immediately quickly plug into either Twitter threads or resources that, that movement workers have been building up over decades to academic journals, there's a whole just breadth of academic research. And it just seems like this watershed moment in terms of being able to rapidly radicalize a white population, about, which is just crazy to me. Yeah, this is such an interesting time. And I mean, similarly, I've been a prison abolitionist for 25 years. I've been literally working on the ground doing abolition work for 25 years. And now to see articles in Cosmo about defunding the police... Right? about prison abolition, I'm like, I wake up sometimes and I don't quite know what world I've woken up into, (laughs) except that I know that I think I like it. (laughs) So yeah, just sort of thinking about what it means right now for this to be the zeitgeist, for this to be the push that we're all sort of talking about. Ruth Wilson-Gilmore talks about, and and Julia Sudbury, Chinere Apara, you know, so many scholars have talked about how the abolition of the police and prison system is just the finishing the work of our ancestors Mm -hmm. that will abolish slavery. This is just a continuation of that work. Che Gossett made this beautiful tweet yesterday that said, yes, pull down all of the monuments to slavery, starting with police and prisons. Recognize that those are monuments to slavery. So I'm really interested in how this is being taken up. What I think about as an activist, of course, is that we know our messaging can be co-opted. We know our messaging can be watered down. We know our messaging can be shifted. So what I don't want to see is a reduction of the police budget by 10%, for example, and then Mm. consider it done. That is not what we are fighting for. If we are in the streets right now in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a pandemic, we are going to fight for the entire percentage, 100% of that Mm -hmm. budget. We're going to make sure that Black people are able to be in the streets and be free. I mean, when we look at what's happening, Black people, and in particular Black mad people, are just not safe in the streets because of policing. This is a system that is not working. It is not keeping our community safer and more secure. It is not creating a sense of justice for a whole bunch of people. It's instead brutalizing particular communities. And so the only way to live on 
this planet at this moment with any human dignity at the moment is to struggle against these systems of violence that are brutalizing Black and Indigenous communities in particular ways. So I'm here for this conversation. I'm here for this moment. Mm -hmm. And I'm just sort of watching and seeing it unfold while also trying to push to make sure that it doesn't get watered down. I think one of the dangers of that I'm noticing, that I started seeing in real time last week over social media, primarily around that watering down, Mm -hmm. is around holding up, on the one hand, the most extreme manifestation of these systems that's very visible and that's very front of mind, and a tendency, particularly from white voices, to reduce things and say, all we're asking for is to just stop murdering Black people. And it's like, Mm -hmm. y'all, There is a whole system. There's a whole apparatus behind that. And like, this is what's happening on camera. Of course, it's egregious that they're arresting CNN correspondents on live television for all the suburban moms to see. But that is not all we're asking for. And so holding the line and making sure that the very people who are outraged about that, that we're bringing them along, that we're not necessarily alienating them, but that we're continuing to do the political education to say, no, it's actually not enough to just have the police be gentler or to shrink their budgets a little. I mean, their budgets have tripled just in the last decade. So even a reduction of 75% is not adequate. What we need to talk about is the more fundamental structures of what is powering the system, what are our models of justice. And so to make sure that every time that we're saying, actually, it's about abolition, that every day that gets decentered, it's almost like mindfulness meditation. We're like, no, this thing. And they're like, totally, totally. And then the world starts drifting off. We're like, no, 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 no. Come back. This thing, this is our intention. Please return to it. And here's also why. Here are some mm-hmm. of the things mm-hmm. you understand about why more surveillance and body cameras and larger budgets or whatever is not the solution and is not what's working. And it's also not about how we shrink a carceral system or how we make it friendlier or gentler. That actually, from the roots of the system itself, it is all messed up. And in fact, the criminalization of Black bodies has everything to do with our economic system. That's and right. The- Black people don't have wealth, don't have means, and this pandemic has only heightened the desperation of that. Mm -hmm. So this this can't be reduced to just being about the most egregious thing that you saw that woke you out of your stupor of being comfortable with a white Mm -hmm. supremacist system. Mm -hmm. It needs to be about actually reckoning with what is going on with Black people. There is not going back to normal. Normal was dispossessing Black and Indigenous people for centuries. And so what we need to do is come out of this reorganizing a lot of things. And I th- I'm so here for that journey. I'm not here to help educate white ladies about how to conduct themselves in their nonprofits in a particular way. Ooh, say that, friend. Say it. To some, like, poor, so fundamental system. And I will have those conversations with white people. Totally. I'm here for that. Ooh, I'm here for you. <laughs> I'm here for you. I'm here for you. There's a meme going around, defund the police as a strategy, abolish the police as a goal, and fuck the police as an attitude. And that really, okay, I resonate with that. That, Could that you works say that again? Me. Could you say that again? <laughs> <laughs> defund the police as a strategy, abolish the police is the goal, and fuck the police is an attitude. It's the <laughs> attitude. That's what we're thinking about. That's what we're moving through. My comrade in New Zealand, Sonia Renee Taylor, brilliant artist, poet, and author, was on her IG the other day just talking about the slumber of white folks and that your slumber is not free. It came at the cost of Black lives. And that's the truth. It's like what you're saying is really like, okay, y'all got here and now you want us to be embraced. And it's like they're going out to some activity that you said, take your babies to it and Mm -hmm. let's go and raise our fists. And they're not 
able to really kind of like understand the intersectional oppressions and the systems that are interpersonal, intergenerational, internal, all of these things are like at play. It's really, it's a trip. My work is really about bringing back to the center, the lives, the creative labor of black women specifically, and who is at the center of queer women, who is at the center, whose ideas and work is like fueling this and continuing to keep us afloat. We're able to be buoyant and like take a rest and come back because black women are always working. As I said, mama's always on stage, that old Arrested Development joint. And it's like on all of the time. There has to be an honoring of that. And there has to be something in terms of creative labor and artistic labor that centers our stories, Black people telling our stories. And one of the situations that's unfolded here in the Bay Area, maybe some other places as well, is white artists, white creative collectives getting paid money to write Black Lives Matter, to actually put Black body art on all of the boarded up windows in downtown Oakland. I see you like holding your face because it's like really something to behold over the weekend. One of the things that happened is that the strip in downtown Broadway in Oakland became a walking gallery. It's kind of glorious, but you see a lot of white artists outside and you have organizations and artists who went to those organizations and said, hey, can I get some money to do some art, to do some mural art? And they're putting up flowers and fairies and gnomes. And it's like, no, this is an opportunity. This is, you must center the radical imagination of Black lives right now. And so you being up here with like one brown body and 22 white folks. So there's a sister who has been championing this over the weekend named Sequoia. And I'll have to find her Instagram so that we can share it in the chat. Mm-hmm. But if you're looking at this called Paint the Void, this organization Paint the Void, as though there was some void here in the Bay Area or United States, there's no void in our communities. Our communities are vibrant and rich and like centering our creative labor. And so this idea of let's just paint over and be like, we just want y'all to stop killing Black people. It's like there is a conversation that has to happen around power and privilege and fear and rage, and what that means for all of us who have some modicum of privilege, even being able to sit in front of a screen for an hour and talk about this. Mm -hmm. What are we willing to give up? What does that mean to actually decentralize the power? And what does it mean to be in revolution, not actually white culture, mainstream capitalist, extractive culture in the sense that, oh, that's the dream, but actually not have that in blackface, but to actually have a true revolution. So what does that mean for us to make it plain and lay it there? Because it's been laid there. Yeah, I think all of y'all are touching on this sort of between the watering down and movements being co-opted, just this, how easy it is for a general population to drift away from a mission. It's like, ooh, shiny thing over there. And sometimes the calls come in from inside the house. So can we talk about it? Can't wait. Can we explain the problems inherent in that proposal that's being put forth, which is seems at its face to not be diametrically opposed to, I think, what all of us are aligned with, which is prison abolition and police abolition work? Maybe I'll start with just a tiny piece of that, which is one, I think that part of what is important about the role of artists, organizers, poets, creative people is making sure, and it's not like your responsibility if you're a creative, but do your thing. Like that's your role as an artist. You're not charged with doing this. But I think what it helps us do is pop open our capacity to expand and imagine so that When my folks are proposing these like, whoa, mind-blowing 
things, ideas like that we can decenter white supremacy, that we can live in a world without prisons, that workers can own their own jobs and workplaces, that all different bodies, body types can be liberated, that disability justice can be at the centers of how we reconstruct our society, that that all has a place to land, that it's like tilling the soil so that when those seeds sprinkle in and land, all we're waiting for is for that nice little rain to come in and be the thing that helps to catalyze the growth of those seeds. And so artists help to make that case, including within our own communities, Mm -hmm. including for Black people who have internalized a lot of, as a survival strategy, like there's no way to get through your day to day without being like, what are my strategies to just get through and to get by? And some of that needs to be having some sort of faith in the education system as it is, in our public spaces as they are, and all the different forms of, even at least in the U.S., a lot of elected Democratic officials under whose watch this is all happening. This is happening in places like Los Angeles, Minneapolis, New York, Philadelphia. So don't try to turn this into a Trump thing or a red state thing. Like So all of those things need to be taken into consideration when we're strategizing, not just about who we're calling in in a multiracial movement, but how internal to ourselves. I mean, we have to do this work for each other, even within movements. That's what accountability is, is being accountable to our ancestors and finishing that work, as you were saying, that Dr. Gilmore pushes us in some of the most, I think, powerful ways to insist upon. We're not just saying a world without prisons because of minor drug offenses and blah, blah, blah. Ruth Wilson Gilmore insists upon us saying that we got to start with rapists and murders and think about what are our strategies for solving those problems around Mm -hmm. domestic violence. I mean, a lot of my work in this area comes from working with sexual assault situations within my community without in any way relying on courts, police, and systems and kind of experimenting with community accountability. So I think that's part of what artists are able to do is to keep us open to that world of possibilities. And then I think we then train that on these moments where some reformist moves start to come because of course they're going to come. Someone always wants to say what is quick and easy. And then there's, when you have mass mo- global mobilizations, we're all conditioned to have something that's cathartic, something that feels good, that feels like a win. And I think that's an important lesson to our movements. Are we setting people up to feel disappointed because the thing that we're telling everyone we're fighting for is so unattainable and therefore everyone is right to be scooped up into, hey, we painted Black Lives Matter on the street and like, mm-hmm. we're all good now. And so actually training people, whether it's Instagram influencers or well-meaning multiracial people, training them that we need to listen to the right voices, that we can't be tokenizing just any Black people. We can't be tokenizing any political platform that seems like it's achievable and a win therefore, but that we actually need to, in fact, this past weekend, the statement that I made on Instagram that I think was like reposted the most, especially from white people, was one where I was saying, listen, you're not going to know. Something's going to feel cathartic in your body. And you're going to be like, great, this thing feels great. I see a cop kneeling or whatever. You're not going to know what Black liberation looks like. So just trust. Retrain yourself to start listening to us. Mm-hmm. And not in a tokenizing way. Start listening to movement leaders who've been doing this work and this organizing for decades. We will tell you. Trust that we will tell you. We will tell you when things are helpful and are winning. What's happening in Minneapolis with their city council saying, actually, we've done a full hard look at reassessing all different reformist, eight can't wait style policies. And we're like, no, 
the only way to actually do this is to defund the police. That is really helpful and important. And when we look at cities that have three out of four, six out of eight of those platforms that have been put forward from the It Can't Wait campaign, and still extreme police brutality and impunity from police unions especially allows for the murder and the violation of the rights and the bodies of Black people in those communities, then we know that that's not what's going to get us free, that it needs to be something that is more fundamental. I'm so picking up what you're putting down. I mean, I've been really moved by that Tony K. Bambara quote that the role of the artist from an oppressed community is yes. to make revolution irresistible, like to literally make revolution irresistible. And that's, I'm an artist and that's been my driving goal is how do we use our creative practice to make revolution irresistible? And I think that that's what we're seeing. We're still creative activisms right now that are helping us. I think, as you say, like it helps to break down a very complex idea into a digestible format because people are able to take it in in a different way through an artistic media. And so I'm very, very interested in that, in that action of making revolution irresistible. And I think that right now what we're seeing, you need to take leadership from, I mean, just turn to any of their incredible Black artists who are making work. When we think of the work of Emery Douglas and what he was doing for the Black Panther Party as the revolutionary artist for the movement, he was putting out work weekly, daily, posting it in the streets, trying to address the social issues that were happening to people in their communities. And I think we're seeing artists doing that now, creating a, a massive amount of things, even, yes, painting on the streets as a creative activism. That's right. The way of sharing a message in a way that other people, rather than giving a lecture or hosting another webinar, it's a direct way to do it. So I'm very, very interested in the activism art that's coming out of this movement and this moment. When we think about abolition, I think it's so important to recognize, yes, I think you touched on that. There are literally ancestors, generations that have been working towards abolition. So we need not reinvent the wheel. We don't need white people to clock this and, and say, here's what we need to do. We've already laid the foundations. I mean, turn to the amazing and incredible work of, again, Dr. Gilmore, Chinure Apara, Amona Ozakara Ray, the amazing work of Vivian Salahana and Giselle Diaz coming out of Canada. There's incredible writing and art and music and stuff about abolition that we can turn to right now. Artists have been monumental and influential in shaping this movement for decades. And so we need just to turn to them and say, hey, how do we amplify your message right now? That's right. I mean, let's listen to artists. There isn't any movement on the planet that hasn't been led and fueled by artists. There's always going to be a chant, a song, a movement piece. There's going to be a poem. That is how we move. And it's how we remember ourselves. Our humanity starts in that place. We all come out as artists. Any child who can feel a will dance to it before they can walk. Any child who can make sound will sing before they can like form sentences and speak and communicate. So we all come out this way. You know what I'm saying? And this whole idea that, oh, now let's be artistic and cool and let's all learn how to make murals and do art. It's like, that's good. And there's actual strategy behind that. There's actual process behind that. It's not like, oh, I'm feeling like really angry. I'm going to go paint up the wall or tag the wall. I mean, there is actual strategy to graffiti art. And so there's, as you say, I'm picking up what you're putting down. And appreciating that. And you're calling the names of the organizers, Dr. Gilmore, Dr. Opara, folks here in the Bay Area. Shout out to Chenere, who is provost here at Mills College in East Oakland. 
But also a shout out to the revolutionary artists. You mentioned our beloved Baba Emery Douglas, but also Joan Tarika Lewis, who is the first artist of the Black Panther Party, a Black woman whose work was not co-opted and not amplified in the way in which Emery's work was, but that she is still alive and living and is also a musician and like put down her instrument and picked up a pen and picked up the paintbrush and picked up that work and then put it back down so that she could like be on the front lines of the revolution with the other women who were leading the Black Panther Party. And this legacy that we have that they laid out for us of love, of radical revolutionary love and how to take care of each other, how to take care of ourselves throughout the communities, throughout the United States and throughout the world. Those models are what we're picking up right now. So yes, just want to honor her work and honor the work. See Black women, protect Black women, trust Black women, hear Black women, and pay Black women. I don't want us to like lose this opportunity to really center the economic implications of being a cultural worker and being an, an artist. And sometimes they are not the same thing, but that right now there is an opportunity for those of us who are cultural workers and who are cultural activists and organizers to actually be able to participate at a very high level in the economic security and sustainability of our communities and of this movement. There isn't any movement that happens mm-hmm. on this planet without money. So mm-hmm. that has mm-hmm. to be part of this conversation as well. And the Comprehe River Collective in the yes. 1970s, they were saying, they said, if we make the world safer for Black women, we are necessarily making the world safer for everybody. I would expand that to a 2020 imagining and say, if we make the world safer for Black trans women with disabilities, whoo, mm. honey, this world would look radically, radically different if the world was actually safe for those people. So yes, thank you so much for bringing in the incredible amount of as you underfunded, unfunded labor of Black women in this movement and this organizing for decades. Thank you. My last question before we land the plane is, we've talked about a bit about sustainability and movement work, like long, how do we sustain ourselves to do this work? And as I said earlier, the thing that has been front of my mind all weekend is how long people have been doing this work. How do we sustain people's activism over a long, hot summer? into a fall election, in the States anyway, without having them get distracted. What are some concrete strategies that we can use? Because that's something that's been top of my mind. So much of my artistic practice is about sustainability of activist lives. I write love letters to activists. I draw giant portraits of activists. I do things to try to help make sure that they can continue the work. One of the things I would say as an artist, but also as an activist who's been on the front lines, is we need to remember that we need breaks. We need lots of breaks. I've been following the NAP ministry, that Black account on Instagram that reminds us yes. that back naps are part of our reparations, that are part of a justice that's due to us. So making sure that activists are taking time for breaks and for rejuvenation, having people that they can check in with on a regular basis, maybe a weekly basis, maybe a standing call where you could just be like, oh, by the way, here, this is what happened this week. This is what I need to process. This is what I need to engage with. Making sure that they have supports around them to be able to continue doing the work. There's an activist here in, in Toronto named Tucker Gomberg who passed away, who, who just before he did wrote an open letter to all activists. And in it, he says, you have to build up networks of care and support while you're well around your activism so that then if things get too much, if you start to get pulled down, you have supports ready to help you in that moment. So take care of yourself. We take care of each other. Yeah, I think it's also recognizing that there's a diversity of tactics and there are certain tactics that are more sustainable or easier to sustain than others. It is very difficult to sustain tens of thousands of people on the street all summer long, year after year. Mm -hmm. Yes, 
we know that we're in crisis. We know that our movements will call for that level of turnout and much more frequently than in recent U.S. history. That's good. We do need moments of that. But in between, first of all, on an individual level, assess where you're at and sit it out if you need to sit it out. But in between, it's actually really easy to sustain things like political education. It's really easy to stay plugged into listening to Black leadership and Black voices, to educate yourself. There's reading lists all over the place, especially nowadays. And even for people who have the privilege of being able to work remotely or to be part of workplaces that they can return to safely with PPE, some of what we've done at Aorta, my worker co-op that does political education and training, are around toolkits and trainings and curriculum for designing sustainable workplaces so that it is not one set of work to create a just feminist work environment with workplace democracy and a separate set of work to work on your mission. You can bring those things together. The work itself should not be draining and you don't need to figure it out all on your own. That's there. And it includes things like here are some suggested readings for non-Black people of color to be in solidarity and to be engaging with movements, or you can always learn about history. I'm constantly having my mind blown about just recovering our own political histories that have been lost to me because of the cultural particularity of being a historical in the United States all the time. And just being like, reconstruction, what? Or like the civil rights movement in the 20s and 30s did what? Like Ella Baker, what? So there's a lot, just find whatever you're passionate about. There's something that will not be boring to you particularly, but that is still an important contribution in your own consciousness elevation in the movement. And I think that that's something that we can do to sustain ourselves in between these moments of things popping off. I would add some of the sustaining work that has been going on is around relational aid and also called mutual aid. And I believe that that is something that we can continue to do in different ways for each other. We take care of each other, as we have all said. I've had the experience as a cultural worker who works as a consultant most of the time. I've had the gift of other artists, actually, of other Black women artists saying, hey, I sold a piece of art and I got a check. And so if I have money, then you have money as a curator because you create space. That's your superpower. And we are relational in how we sustain our financial well-being. Yes. And so taking care of each other, when you see somebody put up their cash app or their PayPal or whatever, cash them out. It doesn't have to be a lot of money. It can be a little bit of money. It's like, hey, I got a hundred bucks. I can give you 10. Maybe that 10 will buy you a meal that week. So thinking about how to share our resources that are financial, as well as if you have a circle of folks that you can touch, maybe you all give each other foot rubs. <laughs> maybe you just like ping your homie, your comrade and say, hey, did you take a nap today? Can I bring you some greens from my box garden outside my window? What can mm-hmm. I do? So those kind of things, I think, helps to sustain our humanity with each other. And it's really about showing love to one another, showing each other that we care, that we're listening deeply, and that small is all. As our comrade Adrienne Marie Brown has gifted us with that set of emergent strategies and that remembering that everything does not have to be big and grandiose. It doesn't have to be a giant mural on the street. It might just be a little tag on the bus stop that I saw walking by on my way with my fist in the air and my sign in the hand. I have the opportunity to notice those small things and see beauty and to be able to like remember that there is joy and pleasure that is also necessary and part of this movement making, part of this revolutionary body, part of us understanding and knowing each other, that joy has to be part of this movement. I'm in it. Oh, that was beautiful. We're going to close on that. 
that was just really, thank you. Thank all of you for your generosity. This concludes our special two-part series of the Work Shouldn't Suck Live Morningish show. If you're new to the podcast, you can download all 25 season one episodes from your favorite podcasting platform of choice and rewatch Work Shouldn't Suck Live episodes over on workshouldsuck.co. If you've enjoyed the conversation or are just feeling generous today, please consider writing a review on iTunes so that others who might be interested in the topic can join the fun too. Give it a thumbs up or five stars or phone a friend, whatever your podcasting platform of choice offers. If you didn't enjoy this chat, please tell someone about it who you don't like as much. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.